Welcome to the Author's Podcast with Lisa Newton. Writing a book is a dream for many people, and in today's society, it has become easier and more important than ever. If you are an expert, speaker, coach, or an authority in your field, having a book is the new business card. It can increase your credibility, enhance your status, and make you the go-to person in your field. Opening doors and bringing a flood of opportunities straight to you. You can increase your fees and start choosing the clients you really want to work with. The Author's Podcast Show with Lisa Newton is designed to inspire, educate and inform you, both entrepreneur and individual, on how to write a book, as well as writer's tips and strategies on how to actually get that book written. On today's show, you learn more about how to write a book, including writing ideas, marketing, and how to succeed in getting a book written. Here we go with the author's podcast, and here is your host, Lisa Newton. Hello and welcome to another episode of the author's podcast. Today, my guest is Susan Sloan. Susan is the author of A Seat at the Table, Women, Diplomacy and Lessons for the World. She works for a global advocacy organisation, engaging with diplomats, government officials, community organisers and international leaders. She's met with more than 60 countries through diplomacy, advocacy and experiential education. At the age of 30, Susan completed a life goal of visiting all seven continents. Susan holds a master's degree in global strategic communications from Georgetown University and graduated magna cum laude with a bachelor's degree in journalism with a major in public relations and a minor in Spanish from the University of Georgia. For more information, you can visit susansloan.com and follow her on Twitter at RealSusanSloan. So on the line, I should have Susan Sloan. Thank you for having me. Hi. Thank you very much, Susan. So let's dive straight in then. So your book is called A Seat at the Table, Women, Diplomacy and Lessons for the World. So for me, immediately, that sort of says to me that... uh, Women, I don't know, are, have a different time being diplomatic than men. Shall we start there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, this book, uh, I interviewed more than 30 women ambassadors, foreign ministers, and government officials, and they shared with me their stories about how they rose in the ranks of leadership and their challenges that they faced in this network and space that they operate in. Uh, And more than that, the research and data that I looked into for the book is about gender equality, parity, and equity. So it's not only about diplomacy, but systemic change for bringing different gender to the table for better solutions, whether it's uh, a government or an organization for a for-profit endeavor. Okay. And Then thinking of this book, who is the book more geared towards? Both men and women, actually. I really hope both men and women read it because it's going to take both genders to to bring gender parity and equality to the table. Now, while everyone I interviewed, uh, they're women, uh, Mm. 
many men have been reading the book and also men allies helped secure interviews for this book. Uh, they were very helpful. And uh, when I did the pre-sale, I would say that it was a split between 50% men, 50% women that bought the pre-sale for the book. So there are definitely a lot, many men who are interested in this topic and also hearing the stories that they may not get to hear from women leaders. We have many books that are published, especially about diplomacy with a perspective of a man. And so now there's a book out there that has a perspective from a woman and solely from women, which is far different than anything else. Right. And had you sort of noticed this? Is what, what was it the driving force that made you want to write the book? Well, I work in diplomacy full time in Washington, D.C. And I realized that often many of these women's voices are muffled or muddled. They don't necessarily have a seat at the table for their voice, their story. Uh, when I go to a foreign policy panel, it's typically men or maybe there's one or two women. There's now a shift going on where there are more women, but it, it's mainly men and their stories that they share. And then when a woman is on a panel, uh, typically the panel is about just being a woman diplomat. Um, it's not about substantive issues. And many women are changing that mode saying, no, find that we're women and find that we're diplomats, but we want to talk about substance, not just the fact that they're women. Uh, so there's a shift going on. And right now there's a wave going around the world. Uh, I think we're in another culture change where feminism and I would say systemic change with gender uh, and diversity is something that's at the forefront of society. And so this book is very timely uh, yes. with, you know, with the wave of the Me Too movement. Um, we see women speaking up in far different ways than we ever have before. And this book is the wave of that. Yes. And I think that um, just from what you're saying, when I think diplomacy, I think governments. But I also think, you know, these lessons could be applied just in, in business in general, just on all spheres of life, really, where women are sort of underrepresented. Completely. Uh, we all participate in diplomacy in some form or fashion. You can think about it if you have um, a family and children, you're often the diplomat uh, negotiating almost treaties, right? Resolutions in your own home. We all have a face of being a diplomat in so many different aspects of our lives. And the lessons included in this book and the stories, it doesn't matter what sector you're coming from. Many people can relate. And this idea of noticing of who's around the table uh, is so important. So it doesn't matter if you're an attorney, a lawyer, a government official, a banker, a candlestick maker, whoever you are, um, who's sitting around the table making decisions. When we work or when we are in our communities looking around at who's around the table is very important. And we have this opportunity to use our convening power. One of the stories that I share in the book is about Milan Revere, who was the first ambassador for the U.S. for global women's issues. And when she would meet with ambassadors who were about to be posted abroad on behalf of the United States government, she would tell them, your biggest power is your convening power. You have the opportunity to bring different people to the table that would never meet and that would never speak together. And so that lesson can be taken in any sector in whatever you're doing. 
is that when you're at the table, you have the power to bring others with you and to look around and to question. So if you're sitting with a group of people that look all the same and come from the completely same background, you're not going to get necessarily diversified opinions and resolutions that could benefit your company, your group, your family, maybe any organization that you're with. And so this idea of convening and looking who's around the table is, is a very powerful idea. Yes. There are some people, though, who would say, well, they're around the table because they're the best people to be around the table. A hundred percent. And this is no knock on merit, right? Uh, When I spoke with the Danish ambassador, she said to me, it's very important to have merit, to have qualifications, uh, to be sitting at the table. You can't just have a quota of uh, having diversity for diversity's sake. It doesn't work like that. What the mix is, is having the background, the merit, the qualifications, and having this idea of diversity. It can be very, very powerful. And what Australia did, uh, the Foreign Ministry of Australia, they determined that instead of quotas of saying, we need this many women in managerial positions or top leadership, what we're going to do is put targets of how many women we want in these areas. And if there aren't qualified women who are applying to the positions, it's okay. Targets are aspirational. It's not saying that we have to have this amount of women. And that's what they did. And they actually reached the goal of what they sought after, which was to have 40% men, 40% women, and 20% either in manager positions and top leadership. That percentage allows for significant culture change within an organization. It's a proven data point. And when they were creating the targets, they said, okay, by this year, we're going to get to 30% women in managerial roles and top leadership. And the first year that they'd set that, they actually didn't hit it. They didn't hit that goal. And that was okay. And the next five years, they said, okay, we're going to get to 35%. And they did hit that goal. And then eventually, when they set the goal to 40%, the ultimate goal of hitting 40% men, 40% women, and 20% either, they actually hit it a year ahead of time. Uh, So it's possible. So this idea of targets is way more attainable. And also you want to have people who are qualified sitting at the table. I completely agree. It shouldn't just be for diversity's sake or uh, to be the token person of whoever you're trying to get through to come through your door. That doesn't work. And both the organization and the people in the positions need to work well together. So having that mix of targets as well as diversity and gender at the table can be very powerful, especially when they're qualified and have merit. You were listening to the Authors Podcast with me, your host, Lisa Newton. You can email me, lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And remember, we have the Inner Circle, which is for writers just like you. And you can join us at writerbook.net. So if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Susan Sloan, who is the author of A Seat at the Table, Women, Diplomacy and Lessons for the World. So Susan, you mentioned that you interviewed uh, lots of women in order to get this book written. So my question is, how did you manage to find them? And were they forthcoming? Because there are people out there that I try and, you know, you, you need to do research. You need to, to get people 
you know their opinions and ideas for your book and people just aren't very forthcoming so how did you find that process and were people you know willing to to talk to you how, how did you find that well it was a mixture of of my outreach what i did is i created a list of women that i i wanted to interview and it was a very diverse list um ranking from very powerful women to maybe women that maybe many people hadn't heard of um, but all in significant roles in their life professional roles that uh, i wanted to hear about their experiences as I began talking about my book and speaking about my book publicly, whether I was at an event or at a social function, people started saying, oh, I know someone you can interview. Yeah. And anytime they, a friend or a colleague or a random person would tell me, oh, you should speak to this person, I did. I would reach out to a person or ask for an introduction and I would interview them, whether I use the interview or not. And that helped get the ball rolling. What I also found is that I didn't say no to myself. So I reached out to many different embassies and many different high-ranking women officials. And some said no and some said yes. But what I did find is once I, I found a linchpin, essentially, I, I found the former Hungarian ambassador who was the first woman in that role, who I had met numerous times in Washington, D.C. And she had finished her work as ambassador. And she's currently working at a think tank. Uh, organization in Washington. I reached out to her on LinkedIn mm. and I told her I was writing a book and I'd love to interview her. And it was a cold LinkedIn, you know, message and she responded and she agreed. And I met her in her office. I, she sat down with me for one of my first interviews. It was an amazing interview. She's fascinating. Her story is uh, really profound. And I, I write about her in a few chapters in the book actually. And in that interview at the end, she asked me, who else are you interviewing? And I, I gave her my wish list of women I wanted to interview. She said, look, reach out to these countries and these ambassadors who I know, copy me on that email, and I will send them a personal note saying, I, I interviewed with her, you should do it too. Oh. And that was very powerful. So the network that you create and being intrigued by their story, but also the willingness of other people who I interviewed to share their contacts with me and to get that ball rolling was really special. And so from that, many women that countries that I wanted to interview said yes. And I don't know if she personally emailed them or not, but I sure copied her on those emails. <laughs> <laughs> and also the follow-up. Uh, some people, you know, I, I don't think often people sometimes follow up with different folks and whether it was a phone call or emails and sometimes, it, oftentimes there was rescheduling of interviews. I mean, these women and are leaders and they're, they're quite busy, especially in Washington, D.C. and around the world. And I tried to get as many as possible. And I've, I think I got all the regions of the world covered uh, that are diplomatically represented around the globe. I mean, there's no diplomatic representation in Antarctica. So, but that was really important to me to get the diversity of the regions of the world. And I, I did it. And uh, I think the book is better for it. Right. And are some regions doing better when it comes to women in diplomacy than others? Yes. <laughs> yes, they are. 
Uh, right now, I'd say the Nordic and Scandinavian countries have really done a great job of gender and equality and parity within their countries. Mm-hmm. And also some countries that you wouldn't think of, for instance, Namibia, which is a country in Africa, mm-hmm. uh, has done a really great job of having women in government and in many different positions. They have something called the zebra policy, which is having a man and woman alternate in different high-ranking positions Mm. through their uh, time that they're supposed to hold the role. And so their policy is, is the zebra policy. And another country, which is Australia, they've done tremendous work to bring more women into the foreign ministry and the government positions. And they have many different policies that I write about in the book that actually companies and organizations can use in their own workforce that will completely shift gender and leadership, which also makes a company um, more profitable if you're looking at a for-profit company. But the Nordic countries and Scandinavian countries, they stand out the most. Uh, so Finland, Sweden, Iceland, even Denmark has done some things. Uh, so those countries really stand out. And is there a reason for that? Is it a cultural thing? Is, that, is Does it go back to a certain, I don't know, point in time? I think that's quite fascinating. Like, how have they developed or at a faster rate compared to others? Well, there were key women in leadership roles in those countries at some point. And because these women were at the table, they started bringing up issues that men weren't looking at. So number one, parental leave. What is the system for parental leave in a country? And parental leave is one of the first things that really holds back women from rising them the ranks of leadership. When a woman has a child, how much time she's given to take off from work can really define her career. And what I mean by that, if she is given, um, if a woman's given a certain amount of time off from work to have a child, and a man isn't, so this is why we have really have to think about gender equality here then oftentimes a man's going to be given a promotion or keep rising in his position at work. And the woman can fall behind because she's out of the workforce for a few months. But when you have both men and women taking off time for parental leave and the government sponsoring that or the country sponsoring that, then it doesn't matter who's having a child. Both women and men are going to be out of the workforce for a certain period of time. And it's socially and culturally acceptable. So what we have seen, especially in research, is that countries that have an equal parental leave system and a far-reaching parental leave system, so we're thinking about more than six months, so anywhere between nine months to 12 months, it's not only impactful for a company and corporation or government, but also for this culture of valuing family. And more women were able to rise in the ranks of leadership and get into managerial positions with this parental leave. And the second part of that, countries that offer childcare, wow, they are really able to do something with getting more women to the table and leadership. Childcare is one of the number one issues facing women in the workforce. Uh, in the United States of America, we have, I would say, a childcare issue where we don't have a system that is adequate for many different families. And you will see that many women struggle with this issue of simple childcare, and men do too. And so when you alleviate those issues, it really creates a more equal playing field for both men and women. And our society is changing, culture is changing, but the countries that have done that, they have more women 
at the table and in leadership positions. And those two things can really change a country, a society, a workforce. So I would say those two things are something to look at. Yeah, no, definitely. I I remember I used to do bookkeeping in a nursery and um, the fees, the cost of childcare. (laughs) I remember one staff member saying, you know, it's like almost the equivalent of having a second mortgage. They had two kids. So it's very um, expensive prohibitively um, in some places. And yeah, I I can see how that can be a real issue. Yes, definitely. It, yeah, it's prohibitive. Um, and also, many people can't afford childcare, uh, you know, and especially countries that have many children, right? Um, and so it's an issue that we could alleviate as society if we have a different way of thinking about family, because people are having kids no matter what. So <laughs> we need to solve this issue. And, and every country has a different way of looking at it. And it's not a one size fits all situation. It's not that every country is different, every society is different. And, and also Nordic and Scandinavian countries are typically homogeneous cultures that is changing now with um, immigration and migration. But their societies are quite different when you look at countries that are far more diverse than their population of race, culture, ethnicity, socioeconomic status. The solutions to these issues are going to be far more complex. So we need to look at that. However, because the issues are so complex, we need diversity at the table and gender, different genders at the table in order to solve them. Maybe it's a catch-22, but uh, we definitely need to have these people at the table to solve these issues that we're facing. And you know, talking off the table, have you ever been in a room where you are literally the only woman, the only female in the room? Yes. Actually, in diplomacy, where I work, when I go to a meeting, a meeting with different countries, there's oftentimes that I'm the only woman sitting around a table or an only woman represented in um, a meeting. Uh, I'd say in my own organization, that's not the case. Uh, we have many different women leaders and directors, and uh, it's very, I would say, diverse dealing with gender. But going out in, and working in diplomacy, especially with certain countries, there's certain countries that every time I go, I am the only woman there, which that is just crazy to me, right? I mean, women, were 50% of the population. Why am I the only woman in a high-level meeting? doesn't make any sense. And so governments are changing uh, and other countries are better than, than some others, right? But uh, yes, I think this idea though that I heard from these different women leaders is that it is easier when there are more women around the table because when a woman says an idea, it's not just hidden essentially or a man can take it over. And many of the women told me, and these are high ranking leaders, they said, yeah, I've sat around a table, I've, I've said an idea, and then no one's listened to it. And then a few minutes later, a man will say the same idea and they'll say, oh, great idea, Bob. And so this idea that they do around the table is that when there's other women, even if you don't like the idea or not, they'll have the woman repeat the idea. So if a woman says an idea around the table, then another woman will chime in. She'll be like, Sally, that's a great idea. Can you say that again? I'd like to hear that again. And it's echoing each other. And Mm. so there's this idea of the power of three to have at least three women around the table. And it's uh, it's an idea on leadership. And so the women leaders use it now that they echo each other to hear one another. And then men are doing Mm. it too. Uh, Men are starting to be stronger allies of women 
and to echo them as well and say, well, Bob, actually, I think Sally said that. Um, (laughs) It it can be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You were listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. Please do subscribe to, like, and share this channel. So if you just tuned in, I'm talking to Susan Sloan, who is the author of A Seat at the Table, Women, Diplomacy, and Lessons for the World. Do you know, Susan, I could listen to you for hours. I think that uh, so many things are coming into my mind, just like when I've gone networking and um, in these situations. I used to do a lot of breakfast networking, so it's early in the morning, like 6.30, 6.45 starts. And I remember at one meeting, there was three women there and um, the energy was very male. I remember, you know, they were telling rude jokes and then kind of, oh, you know, ladies are present and (laughs) kind of, you know, I don't mind me, you know, kind of thing. But I remember just thinking, wow, you know, it's, um, the energy is just very different, I think. It's true. Women and men inherently have different energies. And there's a story that comes to mind that I write about in the book. It's from the Honorable Mary Beth Long, her background, she started out in the CIA for the United States, and she was placed in Latin America working for the State Department. So she was essentially under the disguise of being a diplomat, but she was really working under a covert mission for the CIA. Mm-hmm. She rose in the ranks of leadership, and she ended up becoming the first woman assistant secretary of defense. So what that means, especially for international listeners, is that she worked in the Pentagon under the Secretary of Defense, and her ranking as a civilian was similar to a ranking as a four-star general in the military. So it's one of the most prestigious and high-ranking civilian positions that you can have. And the fact that she was the first woman to do this under um, the Pentagon, which is the military zone in a very male-dominated sector, is quite profound and amazing. And What she learned uh, when she was working for the CIA, she had a mentor and she was down in Latin America and he told her, when you walk into a room, music plays. And there's this idea that when Arnold Schwarzenegger walks into a room, certain music plays. And when Danny DeVito walks into a room, other music plays. And as a woman, your music is very different. You should never try to be a man's music. And you can use your music in any shape that you want, but make it your own symphony. And she started using that, that she stopped trying to be like the other men in the room. She started being herself and finding her own voice and using her own music. And actually, it helped her quite a bit. Uh, She would get meetings with different contacts that she needed to get meetings with. And when she went back to her office to speak with her colleagues, they're like, how did you get that meeting? And it was really this idea of using her own music. And so you mentioned that you were at these, oh gosh, early meetings at 6.30 a.m., yep. which uh, that's, oh gosh, that's an early call time. But, uh, and there's these men making these jokes that aren't respectable or, uh, for women. You don't have to go in there and those jokes back with them. And you can play your own music and that to your own benefit. And as women, I think that's very powerful mm. that we don't have to be men. We can use our capability as women to let our own music and symphonies play. And it's going to sound different. And being different is a good thing. You don't want to be like everybody else. And that's what I heard from these leaders is that you want your music to be so different that when you walk to a room, people notice you, people want to hear you, people respect you. And that's powerful. Yeah. 
And on that note, Susan, I'd like to thank you very much for being a guest on the Authors Podcast. Let us know how we can get in touch with you because I'm sure people out there are feeling inspired like, yeah. (laughs) How, How can people get in touch with you? Well, thank you for having me. And uh, you can get in touch with me on my website, Susan Sloan, S-U-S-A-N-S-L-O-A-N.com, as well as I'm on Twitter at Real Susan Sloan. And I'm also on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I think it's Susan Sloan 76. You can follow me. And I write articles on Medium as well. But check out the book. It's on Amazon. It's Kindle. It's on Barnes and Noble, um, different sites. And I'm actually recording an audio book, which should be out shortly. And so, uh, yes, please get in touch. I hope you read the book. I'd love to hear what you think about it. And I, I hope it brings everyone who reads it, some mentorship and ideas of how to create more seats at the table and also embracing uh, your own unique voice. Excellent. So a reminder, the name of the book is A Seat at the Table, Women, Diplomacy and Lessons for the World. And the author is Susan Sloan, my guest today on the Authors Podcast. Susan, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And so listeners, that concludes another episode of the Authors Podcast. I do hope that it gave you food for thought and be thinking of how we can be more inclusive and uh, get a seat for women and men at the table. So I will see you next time on the Authors Podcast. Thank you. You have been listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton, sponsored by Boogles Limited. Tweet the show at Boogles underscore books, spelled B-O-O-G-L-E-Z underscore books. You can also contact your host via the email address lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And if you want to join our authors community, join the inner circle at www.writerbook.net You have just been listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. See you next time.